Anyway, let's go on then from there. Uh, once we happen to hit this issue of, of attitudes and government and so on in Peter, uh, in that sense, inadvertently, that wasn't where I was headed, but perhaps because of the content of faith and hope and love that these books cover, uh, an impediment to those three things uh, is attitude, especially about government. And we discussed, first of all, the Old Testament and how God has always had people in charge, uh, well, all the way back to when Satan was under God and, and Christ's rule and uh, rebelled against it, really. But uh, as an overall comment on the Old Testament, God always had men in charge of Israel. Uh, and as a, a summary of that, any time you had a leader that God had appointed, whether it was Moses or David or some of the prophets or whoever, uh, people griped and moaned and complained about the leadership. That was something that Israel just did. They murmured and complained, uh, even as they were being delivered. And that continued throughout, whether it was the kings or whether it was the prophets whom they stoned. It was always the case when God appointed someone to be the physical head under the spiritual heads in heaven. And then, the minute the leadership disappeared and people leaned to their own judgment... They didn't have to be gone very long. Remember, Moses just went up on the mountain for 40 days, and when he came back, they already had the golden calf and were naked and fornicating. Uh, it only took that long. So, with leadership, there are always complaints. And without leadership, there is a, an immediate decay. So, just an overall comment as to why God always has had leadership, plus the fact that we expect to rule someday in the kingdom of God, but He puts us through the motions to see if we can be ruled first. And of course, the first level of leadership, or, or control, or rule, is self-rule and self-control. Those are the things that God expects of us, and He puts human leaders there to remind us, to exhort us, to correct us, to help us control ourselves. Sometimes just being reminded helps us. And it has been my observation through my years in the church that when people are isolated from a congregation, they can't attend, uh, they tend to start slipping backward. They begin to slowly give up or not take things as seriously and for granted. Mr. Armstrong found that out very early when he would go to an area up even in Oregon and preach at his little rallies or revivals or whatever he called them at the time. And if he wasn't there and there was no local pastor, they just forgot everything that they had heard and went right back to what they'd been doing. So that has been our experience in this end time church of God, is that people need to be connected to each other, and they need to be connected under God through organization, 
Otherwise, they tend to slip and fall away. And even in my own life, I have noticed when we have been isolated from the church, we begin to take things more for granted and not be as up to snuff as we ought to be. Uh, when we were out of the church over the Sabbath, or not willing to keep it from six to six, and weren't attending and weren't seeing people much, we just tended to slowly lose the fervency that we should have had. So I've seen it in others, I've seen it in myself. So God wants us to be connected. Now, so we discussed the Old Testament, and I spent the better part of two weeks uh, discussing uh, New Testament scriptures showing the authority, the rule, the supervision, the oversight, and so on. Dozens of scriptures are in there. I covered, I don't know, a couple dozen or so, that aren't covered by people who have ideas that we shouldn't have government or it should be very, very limited. And I think enough proof was shown from those scriptures, which they ignore, uh, that certainly there was solid structure and power and authority in the early New Testament church. Now, based on the premise of Hebrews 13:8, Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever, I want to discuss the future, uh, starting with the immediate future and on down into the future, to see what God is going to do in the future. Now, this is a, a way of looking at things that we have used in the past on various subjects. What did God do in the past? What is He doing now? And what will He be doing in the future? And for some reason, people will look at the past and see what happened there, but then they'll say, well, but He's not doing that now. But what about if He's doing it in the future the same way? Do we then forget about it? Oh, that's been used with the uh, annual holy days and the feasts of God. Well, they kept them in the early New Testament. They kept them in the Old Testament. They're going to keep them in the millennium. But they say we don't need to keep them today. Uh, you know, is God consistent or what? Or does he let us off the hook for a while and then put us back on it later? Uh, it doesn't make sense. So that's the approach I want to use here today. Let's go to Revelation 11. We'll talk about the very near future here. Christ had shown uh, the Apostle John a little book. He was told to take and eat of it, and it was sweet as honey. And as soon as he had eaten it, his belly was bitter, end of chapter 10. And he said to me, you must prophesy again before man or many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So, God was revealing, or Christ was, to the Apostle John that the work wasn't finished. Now, let's understand John was at the end of a great falling away. He was the last man standing after all the other apostles had been martyred, and he was given the last message. So, the kingdom of God was a sweet thing to John, and yet, if, on the other hand, uh, there was a bitterness there in realizing that the thing was not over, that the gospel must again be preached. Now, it wasn't John that was going to do it, because he was in his high 90s by then when he was about to die. But it was a revelation of things that will be in the future. And I think it's very obvious the book of Revelation is an end-time book. 
with end time prophecies. And indeed, he goes right into chapter 11 and shows who will be doing it. He did say you, uh, but it was those who would proceed from him. In other words, people of the same belief, people of the same understanding, the same spirit of God would be commissioned to do it, not he himself, and indeed he did not. But notice it in chapter 11. And there was given me a reed like a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now we're going to see, in a little further down, a couple of verses, who this was that this was being projected about. But they were given a reed like a rod. And we will find, if we study through on uh, scriptures about the two witnesses and so on, that they are given a rod. Now, what is a rod? It is a symbol of leadership. It is a symbol of rulership. Uh, A shepherd has a rod. Now, he can gently touch the sheep with the rod, or at times he has to correct them with that rod. Uh, Give them a smack on the backside if they need it to get them where they need to be. But notice he says, rise and measure the temple of God. So they were given authority to measure or to assess the church, the temple. And the altar, that would be the ministry, those who attended to the altar. Now, he's using Old Testament language in that sense, but we still go before the altar of the Father and the Son on our knees, and them that worship therein. So, measure the church, measure the ministry, and measure those members who come there. So, they were to take a spiritual account or measurement of the people. There's a certain amount of oversight and of authority that is implied there. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. So he said, your job, at least at the beginning, would be to deal with the church, not the world, not the Gentiles. Because those kingdoms of this world that we see rising up today are going to be given 42 months of oversight and trampling of the temple of God. So verse 3, he nails down whom he's talking about here. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. So... That 42 months is equivalent to 1,000 or 1,260 days. Uh, We have to have a 360-day calendar again for that to happen, especially when another place calls it three and a half years. Those three things can only happen with a 360-day year. So the heavens are going to change again. Now, let's understand who this is talking about. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. What does that mean? Well, if you look that up in the Bible, it's only mentioned one other place. So, it has to be referring back to that spot, right? 
if it's referring to two olive trees, two candlesticks standing before God, then you better look in the past and see all the possibilities of when that could be, okay? The only other place that that is mentioned in any form or fashion is in Zechariah 4. Here he talks, I'll I'll start at the beginning of the context and we'll prove the point when we get a little further in the chapter. But this angel came in chapter 4 and said, I have looked and behold, verse 2, a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are on the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side and the other on the left. And he says, what are these? Verse 5, the angel to talk with me answered and said to me, don't you know what these be? And I said, no. We might say the same thing if we're just reading Zechariah without having first gone to Revelation 11. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. So, a human being is going to be given power from God, not that which emanates from himself, because that would not be sufficient for the job at hand. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it. So this Zerubbabel is going to be given great power. We already read how he would give power to his two witnesses, whom he calls prophets in Revelation 11. Uh, Moreover, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me to you. So, the point I want to make there is that he is going to be, having laid the foundation of the latter temple, he will be the one who finishes it. In other words, God puts him in charge of the operation. I've been told that the ministry should not be in charge of anything. Well, here we find that the leading minister in the end-time church of God will be put in charge of finishing the temple. It is his job. No one else can do it. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with these seven. They are the eyes of the eternal. The eyes of the eternal, the seven, you find in Revelation 1, are the churches, the seven churches. He says in Isaiah 41, he'll plant seven women, or trees, or churches, in the desert and wilderness. He says seven women will take hold of one man, and they're in Isaiah 4. And that it will only be a 10% remnant at the end of chapter 6 of Isaiah. So, one man is going to be in charge, and all seven of the churches will look to that man, along with the other who is with him. It says the seven eyes will also be given on the rock that is put before Joshua. So the, all seven churches will look to those two, but Zerubbabel will be the, uh, the leader. So even among two people, you have one who is in charge. So they don't have to argue all the time about what to do next. One will make the final decisions, and the other will be obliged to say, yes, sir, 
That's just the way it always is with God. It just always is. It always has been. And we find that it will be that way in the near future. So do we discount right now in saying that there should not be government and authority in the church when within the next few years we're going to see it in great power and great authority? Verse 11, Then answered nine and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and the left side? And I answered again and said to him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? So they are instructing the seven churches. They are guiding them and leading them and have authority there. And he answered me and said, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The only place that they are mentioned other than Revelation 11. So it obviously is referring to the two witnesses in the end time church. <coughs> Let's go to chapter 6 and pick this up a little bit and see. Uh, God is upset at the beginning of this and the four chariots come out and then something happens that quiets his spirit. We won't go into all that in verse 8. But he said, Take of them of the captivity. Even of Heldai, of Tobijah, and Jediah, which are come from Babylon. Remember Micah 4, where he tells us, Come out of the midst of Babylon, but go you even to Babylon. So these are men who come out of the society and system that we are living in today, just as he tells us all to do. So they were to go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them on the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. There is one who will be raised up afterward uh, in time to this Joshua spoken of here, who will be known as the branch. It's spoken of in other places as the righteous branch, and so on. Uh, quite a few different scriptures. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the eternal. So we already know who that is. It's already said that Zerubbabel had laid the foundation. He would also finish it. So he's the one who is going to be in charge of the building. Even he shall build the temple of the Eternal, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. He'll be in a position of leadership and rulership. And this is before Christ ever returns. This is talking about the two witnesses in the end-time temple. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So they are going to have peace between themselves. But Zerubbabel will be in charge. And the crown shall be to Helam and to Abijah and to Jediah and to him the son of Zephaniah for a memorial in the temple of the eternal. So there are going to be other prominent men who will receive recognition for the work they do in the end time church, not just the two. Even Micah end of four or five, talks about how there will be seven, even eight principal men that come out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land and drives the Assyrian away with the power of God. So it's more than just two men. But, 
Verse 15, They that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Eternal, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, your God. Now, let's go back to, and pick it up, just the story of Haggai. I won't go through the whole book today. But here he calls Zerubbabel and Joshua, and we know that the people say it isn't time to build a temple, but God says it is. So he tells, he addresses them, and then he stirs the remnant of the people to come down in verse 14. And those two leaders and the remnant of the people came and did work in the house of the Eternal of hosts, their God. So it says they'll come from far there in Zechariah 6, we've already read that, to work in the temple of God. And then he tells them in verse 4, yet now be, of chapter 2, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Eternal, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you the people of the land, says the Eternal, and work, and I'll be with you. Then he says down at the end of this, that in these days he will make Zerubbabel, the last verse of Haggai, to be a signet for God on the earth. And isn't that what the two witnesses become? They're God's representation on the earth and are given power to uh, enforce plagues or whatever they wish. They'll have that kind of power. So God is going to give power to those two men here in the end time. Very clear. And he calls them prophets of God toward the end of chapter 11. So they will hold that office, which is the second highest office in the church of God, as, a, as laid out there in Ephesians 5 and other places. Now let's understand that God is going to give them this authority, this power, this ability, uh, but most people in the church are going to ignore it. Even the church of God, 90% will not heed them. The rest of the world certainly won't, and 90% of the church won't. Let's read that warning in Zechariah 1. See, Zechariah began writing in time about halfway through the message of Haggai. So the word came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, and so on, and says in verse 2, The Eternal has been sore displeased with your fathers. God was not happy with ancient Israel. Why? Because they didn't listen to those whom God sent. He sent prophets to warn them, to correct them, to rebuke them, to inspire them, to encourage them, to do all those things, and they ignored them and stoned them. So God was very displeased with Israel as a whole. Therefore, say you to them, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you to me, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will turn to you, says the Eternal of hosts. He uses a very powerful title here. Don't be like your fathers, turn to God. Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, 
Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? They stoned the prophets, but the words that the prophets gave came back on those people. So he tells us here at the end time that 90% of the church is going to not heed the words of the two prophets God sends at the end. They will ignore them. They will put them down. They will not accept them. Only a 10% remnant roughly will. Is that incredible or what? That those whom God sends, 90% of his own spiritual Israel that he's called out of the world, will ignore them. What an incredible thing. But people haven't changed, brethren. People are the way they always were. They will deny the authority. They will deny the power. They will deny the ministry of those men, even though God has sent them. People have not changed. Now, he calls upon us to change and to turn to God with our whole heart, right here. But he shows us in other places, most will not. And that is sad. I'll not pursue this further, but I wanted us to understand that God is going to see this thing through and that there will be, in the very immediate future, men whom God gives authority and power and rule to guide, lead, direct, correct, rebuke, whatever needs to be done to the church to get it ready and to build the temple. And they will be in charge of it, Zerubbabel specifically, in charge of building the temple. So, yes, God will have men in charge, just as he always has. Now let's move on to the future. Will there be that kind of structure in the world tomorrow? Or will people have liberty to do as they please? And since everyone will that is in the kingdom of God will be God at that time, the first fruits. You'll have all these people in the millennium with Christ here ruling on the earth and God the Father there as well. Will people just automatically obey? Or will there be structure even then? I think that's a very important thing for us to consider when we try to prove but say, grab one out of Revelation 2 or 3 about the Nicolaitans and say, well, that word means in the Greek power or victory over the people. Now, how you can make that connection to the present-day ministry is a stretch. Now, yes, Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 very clearly show, along with Malachi and other places, that the ministry in the church has not been what it ought to be, and he calls upon repentance. We all understand that. But does that mean that there is no power anywhere? No. Uh, 
Could it be? It doesn't say it's a ministry there in Revelation 2. But we've read in 2 Peter 2, and you can read it in Jude, almost the same words, that there will be men who come into the church who will try to get victory over the people, who will try to pull them away, pull them aside, convince them that there should be no power or authority. Now, there's a victory over the people if they can accomplish that. Wolves tear at the sheep and get victory over the sheep by destroying them, by spiritually killing them. There will be those. So they'll teach the doctrine of Balaam and fornication and so on. Have you heard that? They're teaching fornication with the world to go back to the world's way of doing things. All right, let's look at the future a little bit. Let's go to Ezekiel 34. Uh, we'll move on past those others that are read quite often about the ministry. Uh, verse 22 of Ezekiel 34, Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I the Eternal will be their God, and my servant David a prince among them. I the Eternal have spoken it. And he'll make a covenant with a peace with the beast and so on. So in the millennium of God, David is going to be over the house of Israel. He'll be king and prince over Israel. So, even in the kingdom of God, you're going to have a king there. Let's go on, Revelation 2, verse 26. Here he's speaking to the churches. And if you'll recall, at the end of each one of these seven dissertations about the seven different ones who will be here at the end time, he says some things about their future. <coughs> I want to pick it up down in verse, chapter 2, verse 26. Well, let's, uh, yeah, 25. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations or the peoples. So, members of the church today are going to be given power over people in the world tomorrow in the kingdom of God. Now, notice this. To he, so the antecedent here is he, the one who overcomes, a human being. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now we can see in other scriptures Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. But those who overcome in the end time church are also going to be given a rod of iron to rule over the nations and peoples. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. They will have power to break, like you would break a pot with a rod or a club. Even as I received of my Father. So he says, just as I am going to be King of kings and Lord of lords and have power over the nations, I will grant those the same power who overcome. And I will give him the morning star. 
He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he is going to be giving great power, authority, and rule to those of us who overcome. It's one of the blessings that comes in the kingdom of God. Now, everyone who is in the kingdom of God out of all these seven churches will receive all of those blessings given to the seven because they are the first fruits and the bride of Christ. He just says it in different ways, the kind of things he will do with them. Notice Revelation 5, verse 10. You probably know this one by memory. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 9 because it does say of one of the seven churches that they'll sing this new song. They sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So this will be those who are given immortality and eternity, and they will be the only ones who are able to sing this song. Verse 10, And has made us to our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Reign, rule, oversee, guide, direct, whatever is needed. So in the kingdom of God, he's saying those first fruits, those 144,000 are going to be given power as kings and priests. Does that sound like rule? Does that sound like oversight? Now, what about people? Are they going to have to obey anyone in the world tomorrow? Is that bypassed? Let me answer that in just a moment, but let's go to Revelation 19 first and see that we, with what I have already shown you, are going to have the same kind of management responsibility that Christ has. Revelation 19, uh, let's begin in verse 15. Out of his mouth, speaking of Christ, goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He says he'll give those who overcome a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we've already seen he'll make us kings and priests, but he will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will be overall in charge under his Father, and he, the Father and the Son, will be the light of the new Jerusalem there at the beginning of the millennium, and the temple of it. So he will be overall in charge. Now let's notice one here in Ephesians 2. This one is incredible, really. There are those who say that the ministry has no power, or the church doesn't need teachers and ministers today, or if so, they should be basically toothless. They have to gum it. Now, verse 19 of Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So he's writing to a Gentile church and telling them that you have the same standing before God that even Israel had. That they're on the same level, grafted in, not one whit difference among them. Now, notice verse 20 and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. God built the church 
with the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the foundation of the church and of the kingdom of God, God is laying through the apostles and prophets. What an awesome responsibility. Now Christ, of course, is the chief cornerstone. He is the first stone laid, the one that sets the tone for the whole building. But the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. The things that they said from God, that they were inspired to preach, teach, and write, are what we have as the foundation for the church. And we've already read about the end-time church and how God will use two prophets to do the same thing that he has done in the past, and that we are not to ignore them. But most of the church will. Now, where do those go who say that the offices in the church don't have organization or power or authority if the whole foundation is laid on the ministry, with Christ being the key to the whole thing? That is a very, very powerful scripture. In whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal. In whom you also, you members, are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So through the ministry, he lays the foundation of the temple of God, Christ being the key cornerstone but the others filling out the rest of the foundation to build the temple of God. That fits perfectly with Haggai and Zechariah in the story, and Revelation 11 and the story of the end-time church, where two leaders are set to lead, to be in control, to be in charge of what is happening. Now, let's go to Isaiah 30. Will things be stricter or less strict? in the kingdom of God than they are today. Isaiah 30, verse 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk you in it, when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. There will be stricter control than there is today. Today, we're not here to make you do anything. We're here to guide, to direct, to inspire, to strengthen, to remind you to do the things that you ought to do. But we don't follow you around, hopefully, as overlords, overseeing everything you do and making you do it a certain way. But in the millennium, Everyone will have to obey or else. And if you start to go the wrong way, someone will appear behind you looking over your shoulder and tell you what to do. It is going to be far stricter in the kingdom of God for people dwelling on the earth than it is today. Count on it. 
God not only will have organization and rule and kings and priests, He will also direct every step that people take. Because He will enforce peace on the earth. Every knee will bow before Him. And if it doesn't bow, it will be broken. I can take you to quite a few different scriptures to show you that. So it's going to be much, much stricter in the millennium. There will be peace. There will be happiness and joy. But it will have to be enforced. So if you think it's tough now, why don't you live on into the millennium as a human being, and see what you can get away with. You know, human beings don't like to be told what to do. God has made you and me as free moral agents. He's given us a book that tells us what to do from Him, through prophets and ministers who wrote them, or inspired to write them. And then He inspired some to come and teach them to you. But you still are a free moral agent in that sense, and you can choose to follow or not. You can choose to do what you're instructed by God in His Word or not. You can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink, and we don't even need to try. Just lay it before them, and then it is up to them to make right choices and to govern themselves according to this Word as it is explained and given. So we are limited. We can't go to your cabinets and tell you you shouldn't have this, 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 and this. We can't tell you what car to drive or what color it ought to be, or any of those things which were sometimes tried, and that's a lot of the stuff that Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 are talking about, of abuses of the ministry. And some of those things happened. And now we want to throw out, some people want to throw out the entire ministry because of abuses. But that's not what the Scriptures say. That's not the way it has been. It's not the way it is. It is not the way it will be. But in the millennium, it will get stricter, not looser. Because a certain amount of free moral agency will be removed. Christ will say, bow before me. And he tells us that they will bow before us. And if they won't, their knees will be broken. That will be a powerful inducement, you know. Or they'll be told, don't go that way, you go this way. Now that removes a great deal of free moral agency or self-choice. And they will have to do what they would not do in this age, because there'll be carryovers that live into the millennium. Same will be true in the great white throne judgment when all those people come up. Yeah, they still have a choice. Bow or be broken. Obey or die. And you can take whichever option you please if you're a human being during that time. But God is not going to allow anarchy and self-judgment and self uh, direction, selfishness, and every man leaning to his own understanding anymore. It will be a thing of the past. You will either do it God's way, or you will not survive. That's just the way it's going to be. 
God will not have rebels. He will not have those who think they have a better way than His to to live. They will not be given eternal life if they insist on doing it their way. So let's understand, past, present, and future, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no way to wiggle out of it, brethren. There just isn't. People try, and they write long long papers to try to do so. But in the end, when you examine the whole evidence of the Bible, that's the way it is. God does not rule by majority. He does not let the people rule. There is no democracy in the Bible whatsoever. That's just the way it is. There will not be democracy in the world tomorrow. I think that's very clear. And you cannot find one place in the Bible where anything has been put up to the vote of the people. Not one place. I probably could find a $100 bill that anybody can show me where that was actually done. You can't do it. I feel safe. Now, let's go back to Second Peter, since that was where we started. And let's uh, go on through and see if we can uh, get through most of this. We came down to verse 18 of chapter 2. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the desires of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. And that could be referring to those who uh, took control in the worldwide church of God and people since who have taken things into their own hands. But we were brought out of the Methodists and the Baptists and the Catholics and wherever we happen to be, and we're taught the truth of God. And they take them right back where they came from. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. For after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Emmanuel, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. People going right back into the world, doing their own thing. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was voiced to her wallowing in the mire. So they've gone back to Protestantism, to Catholicism, to atheism, to agnosticism, wherever they've gone, and one of the key issues is government. Always has been, always will be. From Satan, through the rebellions of the Old Testament, the rebellions in the early New Testament, where Paul even named names of those who were in the church who were against what he was doing, and he was called as an apostle of God. And 90% of the church will ignore the two witnesses and deny them. 
And even in the world tomorrow, with a perfect government, with God the Father and Emmanuel here ruling with the 144,000 bride of Christ, there will still be those who will deny it. And if they don't come to keep the feast, they'll have no rain. Sooner or later, they'll say, I'm going to the feast. I'm getting really thirsty and hungry. God will make it in such a way that they will obey Him or else. He will not put up with rebels. Hasn't in the past. Won't now. He even tells us there in Ezekiel, He'll purge the rebels from among us. Oh, God will not put up with that in His kingdom. All right, let's go on to chapter 3. The second epistle, beloved, different direction now. I now write to you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken there before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Eternal and Savior. Again, he says, you need to listen to those things the prophets spoke. And haven't we taken it back there? Isn't most of the church still ignoring the things the prophets spoke? Do they still not understand that it's talking about the church in the end time first and then the physical nations of Israel later? They don't get it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. So they're not paying much attention to the prophets. They're just trying to do New Testament, uh, Christian living types of things and preach the gospel when they have not even been authorized to do so around the world as a witness. That will be done by the two prophets, and then the end will come. Herbert Armstrong didn't do it, and neither is anybody today. If they're doing it, they're presuming something that they have not been given the authority to do, and God isn't blessing it, and people aren't being called to it. Now you can say, well, they're not being called here either. No, they're not. But we're not presuming to do something we haven't been given authority to do either. And the things we've learned that the church will not accept creates a situation where they will not respond to what we're teaching. Because some of it is different than what they learned before, and they're not about to give up anything they learned before and move forward in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. (coughs) So I don't expect growth growth right now. Not much of it anyway. (coughs) Anyway which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Eternal and Savior. Commandment of the apostles. They're again echoing things that we have already read about in the last couple of sermons. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own desires, wanting it their way, doing things the way they want to do it. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Nothing's happening. God doesn't have any teeth. The ministry, the church doesn't have any teeth. Things are just going on the way they have been. There are some in the church of God today who think it's still a couple hundred years off. Well, (laughs) the world ain't going to last that long. Not the way it's getting today. It's not going to last that long, so I guess Christ won't come back until everything's already 
collapsed and no flesh saved alive. But he says he'll come to save some flesh alive. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. There's very little understanding in the world, or in the, well, perhaps there is in the church, that the earth was already here when the creation of Genesis 1 occurred. It says in a beginning, if you check the Hebrew, not the beginning. And it says that the waters covered the earth there in Genesis 1. So the earth was already here. The waters covered it so that there was no land visible. And God caused the dry land to appear. So it came thrusting up out of the oceans that were already there. And that's why you have fossils on top of mountains that are 10, 12, 14,000 feet high. They were underwater and under the sea. And then he overflowed the earth with water again so that all but eight people perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store reserved to fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he rehearses here that God created the earth and man became evil, so he destroyed nearly all of mankind. And he says the same thing is going to happen again. This time not with water, because he made the rainbow as a perpetual covenant that he would never overflow the earth with water again. That doesn't mean he can't send fire. Different types of fire. Not necessarily physical flames, though there will be a certain amount of that, but pressure and that which burns and causes withering. So as a seventh earth, the sun will get seven times hotter. I don't know that that means it'll be 700 degrees on the earth. Nothing would, none of us would survive. But it uh, is metaphoric of much heat and fire. And judgment, fiery judgment, if you will. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the eternal as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The eternal is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think that's very interesting. We get impatient. We wonder, well, where are these promises? Now, we've read here many, many wonderful promises that God shows He's going to bring to the church even before Christ returns, at least a remnant of the church, and put it on a hill that cannot be hid so the world can be shown what it could be like if they would obey God. And that will be probably the most powerful tool the two witnesses have is a people protected by God, provided for by God, taken care of. Now, we see those promises for the end time during the time of the two witnesses, there in Zechariah 2, 3, and 4, and so on, and all through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. We see those prophecies made. Well, I began preaching them about, well, from 96 on. 
some of most of you didn't hear that until at least 2000, 2001 or two. And now some are beginning to think, well, this isn't going to happen. When is this going to happen? I'm tired of waiting. Peter is addressing this here now. With God, a thousand years is a day. A thousand years to us is a long time. We might live a small percentage of that, 70 plus if we're lucky. And we want it now, as we've been taught in our culture. So we want gratification immediately. But do you ever consider that God might be holding this back a little bit to allow repentance, to allow people to make it that might not otherwise, and to try and to test our patience and our endurance? Those who endure to the end will be saved. Not those who give up when it comes, doesn't come within the limits of their patience. So he's telling us, wait. God isn't slack. He's going to make these things happen. He just may not do it in the time frame that you imagined in your own mind or I in mine when I first began to understand those scriptures. I thought it was going to come right away because since I knew it, it must be that it was going to happen now. But God has given us time to change, to grow, to repent. Now, there is a certain amount of slack or variance in the timing of this. He tells us not to give him any rest until it occurs. That we are to pray constantly and continually that God cause these things to happen. So, if there is no way that God can be influenced by our prayers, why would he write that? He says when we seek him with our whole hearts, we will find him and he will answer us. So obviously, to some degree, when God begins to bless the church, it depends upon the church. Now, it may not change when God has established that the Great Tribulation and the seven last plagues and all of those things occur and when Christ returns. It need not influence that. But it could influence how soon God begins to work with His end-time church to build the spiritual and probably the physical temple. So He tells us, give me no rest until these things happen. It doesn't let us off the hook, brethren. It puts it on us to implore Him, to beseech Him, to beg Him, to ask Him, and not to give up until it happens. It isn't just that God is ignoring us. It might be that He's waiting for us. So we don't say, well, God isn't doing this, those scriptures must be right, not be right, and Daryl must be wrong. No, they're there. You can go back and read them. But he may be waiting for us. If we're some, going to be some of the faithful and some of those included in the project at the end. So instead of giving up, 
we need to put the pedal to the metal. We need to renew our cry, our plea, our prayer. Because it's not just for us. It's so that a lot of people might be delivered, church people, from the doubt, the fear, the confusion that they are in today. And 10% of them will come once they see that God is working with a small group of people who are who were sent by God, according to Zechariah 3 and Isaiah 8, to be signs and wonders before the church, before the two witnesses become signs and wonders to the world. It happens twice, first to the church, then to the world. Now, let's not let each other down. Let's not let those people out there in the church who don't know what's going on down. We understand. So let us seek God wholeheartedly. And maybe He'll speed things up instead of slowing them down since He's giving us a chance not to perish, but come to repentance. I think I'll stop there. We could go through the rest of this, but there's some, some explanation of what Peter said that needs to be given, and that would take time, and we're out of time for today. So think about that. In your prayer. Don't, go, don't give God any rest. Bug Him to death. Isn't that what Christ said of the unjust judge and the woman who came before God? Or came before the judge? And He finally gave in because He didn't want to see her there before Him again. And He equates that to the kingdom of God and to, to blessings from God. Is he says in Isaiah, don't give him any rest. And Christ himself gave that example of the woman coming before that unjust judge over and over and over again. Now, he's not an unjust judge, but he uses that analogy. And he says that it works the same way with God that it does with a human being. We just, well, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, if you will. Don't let up on it. Keep squealing. Keep squeaking. Keep asking. And it might make some difference in how long this thing goes on before God begins to answer, okay?